I'm your host, Alexander Hefner, and you're listening to the audio podcast of The Open Mind. I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. My guest today is Blair Kelly, Assistant Dean for Interdisciplinary Studies and International Programs in the College of Humanities and Social Sciences and Professor of History at North Carolina State University. Blair Kelly is the author of Right to Ride, Streetcar, Boycotts, and African-American Citizenship, and she is currently at work on a new book, Black Folk, The Promise of the Black Working Class. Welcome, Blair. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Uh, I was hoping you could share with our viewers the research you're doing right now for the new book. Um, what are you working on right now? Well, I'm working on Black folk, uh, as you mentioned. It's a, a history of the Black working class that's grounded in stories of my family and um, the stories of other families. So using oral histories and census documents and research, I'm giving a close look at the experience of what it meant to be the Black working class historically, um, both what they faced, but also what they had, uh, the resources that were present, even in spite of the challenges that they faced. Um, you know, we know there are tremendous inequities that um, African-Americans faced coming out of the experience of enslavement, and yet um, this book focuses on the resources that they had within community, the knowledge and skill that they had as workers, and the power that they had in their collectivity. One of the things you're focused on is economic rights. And we know that segregation laws you know, that you studied intently, um, one of the things that they did was economic subjugation, marginalization, that you know, was decades, if not you know, centuries in the making. Um, but what strikes you, being a historian of, of segregation and segregation laws, uh, about the current landscape um, of economics that sort of links directly to today, those practices of segregation and, and those laws uh, that were on the books for many, many years? It, it's important for us to remember that segregation um, was designed to replicate the control of enslavement. Um, as African-Americans are moving away from uh, rural settings, uh, away from the places in which they had been enslaved into cities, there was a lack of control by white elites. And so segregation laws were intended to uh, dictate what spaces they could go to, where they could live, what jobs they could hold, uh, and to replicate those systems of control on a mass scale. And we, while we've gotten rid of all the segregation laws that say you can't sit at a lunch counter and have a cheeseburger, or you can't um, come and sit and have a cup of coffee in a diner, none of those legally are still standing. However, we, we know um, the, the residue of those generations of separation and inequality still live with us. Uh, many, people still live in communities that are a uh, majority of one race or the other. Uh, many of us are still uh, suffering from the intergenerational um, gap that was created by preventing Black people from having full access to education, to jobs, um, to building wealth. 
um, the devaluation of their homes and their land uh, also undercut their wealth. So as they make choices in the job market, um, those choices don't look the same and they, they aren't reflected. They don't have um, the ability to risk take as much as someone would if they had an inheritance. And so we know that black workers of all classes are more dependent on uh, their income um, to support them on a, a monthly basis. And so that degree to which uh, they don't have a flexibility that they are dependent on wage labor is much greater um, statistically. And so the kinds of things that we see, I, I, you know, I'm celebrating seeing Amazon workers um, uh, led by uh, African-American um, activists really push the question of unionization and work sites like that. Um, that's such a tremendous and important site of change and inequality. And we know historically uh, that Black populations benefit from union membership, um, that union membership has often led to uh, more middle class, more stable lifestyles and intergenerationally. So the, the first unionized spaces, uh, the Pullman Porters, which I write about in Black Folk, for example, the postal workers that I write about in Black Folk, though, those jobs provided uh, middle class stability for generations of African Americans for the first time. Um, and that was through that activism. And so it's a wonderful thing to see uh, continued activism uh, be at play um, today. One of the things that was recognized in the historiographical community in the reawakening of civil rights and the attention paid to civil rights after George Floyd's murder uh, was once again revisiting Reconstruction and the Civil War era, basically understanding that there was this economic enslavement um, that, you know, whether it was in sharecropping or ultimately in the segregated systems that you described, that that, that perpetuated inequities for so long, and you're pointing out that remain to this day, during this period of over a year now, you know, we're, we're coming on, you know, two years of reflecting on what is this next reconstruction or, you know, whether you want to call it the third reconstruction or the third civil rights movement, it, unionization is part of that. Uh, but what else is part of that to your mind? It's been a really stirring time. Um, to think about what, uh, where we are and what could be changed to make things equitable and better. And we have so many voices at the fore that I think are tremendously important. Um, many people are pushing for uh, policing reform. We know that um, the problems with police that African-American communities, particularly urban communities, but also rural ones have suffered um, have been tremendous and intergenerational. When I look at um, the, the people who are migrating to cities in the 1920s and 30s and 40s, they're talking about the brutality of the police against their communities then, um, the assumptions that are made about their presence and um, how corrosive that was. And so I know that there are so many voices at the fore of um, pushing for reform, pushing for abolition, pushing for uh, rethinking of the ways in which we govern communities um, that are, are quite 
uh, broad and, and interesting and such an important conversation for all of us to be engaged in. Uh, really great thinkers around those questions about um, how we assume uh, we want to govern if, if we, we're thinking fresh about those questions. Uh, I'm also intrigued by um, the great resignation of the COVID moment. Um, people who are calling into question uh, work culture and the corrosive nature of that work on uh, people that we call essential workers. Uh, the folks who happen to do the jobs that they could not go home and sit on a Zoom to do, um, but that we all needed in order for our society to continue to function. Um, I hope that there is a rethinking of protecting their health, protecting their security, protecting uh, their ability to make a, a solid living uh, doing those jobs that we find essential. If someone is essential, uh, why are they so lowly paid? Why are we not rethinking um, a minimum wage? At this point, you know, we were pushing for $15 an hour a long time ago. Um, that seems uh, well under what it should be today. Um, so I hope that those questions about um, what is a living wage, what is a, a wage in which people can make progress for their families, um, for their children. And also, I think um, questions of uh, healthcare and support for, for one another, support for um, raising our children and educating them uh, in early childhood education, uh, elder care uh, for so many communities. These things are not experienced equally by particularly lower wage workers who are facing real struggles and figuring out those questions. And we atomize people uh, to say, you know, we know the answer. And what I learned in, in researching my book is that the collectivity that Black people employ to answer tough questions might be something that we can mirror in our policies. How do we think about uh, sharing these burdens that individuals are experiencing um, if they don't, aren't well resourced uh, by society? When you focus on that collectivity, unionization is something that requires it. it it really necessitates that kind of grassroots organizing um but you point out the fact that the affordable care act while it accomplished something uh we increasingly see um the what was lacking in the passage of that legislation and so um you know you can only contemplate what health care options might exist in future legislation. In some communities, there seems to be the recognition that the Affordable Care Act um, was not a sufficient answer to the healthcare crisis and inequities, but there really isn't much movement even at this potentially late stage of the pandemic in you know, changing what are segregated health systems. And uh, I wonder how you approach that in particular. You know, we've talked about the labor issue, but segregated health systems, uh, how should we be thinking about them today? So I, I, um, the closing chapters of my, uh, my project really focus on the burden of health. Um, that, that's intergenerational. I talk about my grandmother's family, who in the course of their migration, um, so many of them um, suffered from TB and died. They hadn't, they were from rural places. They hadn't been exposed to the, um, the, the, the pathogen as young people, um, which would have provided them with some adult immunity. And instead, 
um, as they migrated, they, they passed away. Um, I believe there was like five or six people in, in that part of my grandmother's family who died. And so even as we remembered um, the, the power that they had, um, they, they paid tremendous costs. Um, their, the vulnerability of their health, the vulnerability um, of their communities as, as poor people, as working people who had to continue to work um, even as they face health challenges and even as they lost loved ones. Um, it, it's such an important for th thing for us to remember about a Black working class today. Uh, we know that Black people suffered disproportionately in part because they were those essential workers um, in the COVID crisis. And we aren't thinking about the cost that losing a loved one or having a loved one debilitated by illness um, might really have on them. We are covering the basics right now, um, and we are barely covering those. Our healthcare systems are overwhelmed. Many of the essential workers that I'm talking about are healthcare workers themselves. Um, and we're not thinking about what it looks like inside of people's households, what, what it would take for them to begin to rebuild and remake uh, something much more just. And so I, I, I mourn that we are not talking about um, the, the, the people that we lost. Um, and the suffering and that the, the families are, are, are carrying. And if you aren't well-resourced, if you couldn't stay home, if you are an essential worker, um, missing those family members, missing those connections, um, having your community eroded in that, those ways is really devastating. And so I hope that we begin to have a much more personal conversation, uh, a much more um, family by family understanding of the burden of this this particularly striking and historical moment. Blair, you are based in North Carolina at NC State. Um, that is one of the ground zeros of voting rights and where suppression has gone on steroids. Uh, and we know that for any representation of minority communities uh, or even majority communities that have been denied electoral representation, in order for that to happen, voting on elections, whether that's referenda uh, initiatives or you know, your local um, county executive, your congressperson, um, your president, um, if you can't participate in the electoral process, you're likely not going to be able to to make changes you know beyond the affordable care act for instance and um and so when you think of voter suppression today and the movement not just in north carolina but in many state legislatures to make it more challenging if not impossible for people of color to vote for college-age folks to vote first-time voters um do you think of that as recreating segregation, basically trying to recreate through those laws the conditions of segregation? In many ways, I think that is unfortunately um, very true. I think our misunderstanding of what disfranchisement in the era of Jim Crow looked like uh, allow us to um, see the passage of new laws that are uh, discouraging, suppressive, uh, limiting. Uh, those were the kinds of laws that, that were put into place after the close of Reconstruction and before the advent of you know, the rewriting of state constitutions to wholly disfranchise people. Um, that sort of middling period of voter suppression um, was what 
really made uh, voting so difficult and eroded the rights of African-Americans during that time period. And so I wouldn't say we're at the full disfranchisement moment, but we are in that middling period in the late 1800s, uh, like say 1880s, 1890s, where we saw uh, trickery and confusion and limitation as the means by which uh, voters were suppressed. Um, thankfully, we have more resources at our at our disposal to fight that in this generation than we did in the past. Um, I'm proud of the, the uh, community of activists and uh, attorneys in North Carolina who've worked very vigorously to challenge those limitations in our state. Um, of a, 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 we have a governor who's over, um, overwritten and vetoed many suppressive laws. And so I, I, I think that everyone should have that right to vote and everyone should, um, find a way, even in the face of uh, really devastating limitations, particularly like if we look at a place like Georgia, uh, which was so successful in really creating more access that we don't let false stories about uh, people voting who shouldn't be voting um, run the table. But instead, we, we just allow people to have equal access, to equal time, um, equal space at the ballot, uh, just to, to have their say. And I think, um, we, we need to think and strategize our way through those challenges. Um, how might we uh, better organize voter, um, get out the vote efforts to contest uh, those limitations, to maybe uh, create uh, schedules that allow people to think about when are the best times that I could decrease um, uh, the amount of time I'd spend on the line and thus away from my family or my job. Um, maybe really thinking through um, good strategies to support voters um, and the, their efforts to get to the polls. And, and we have a responsibility to make sure that they, they have folks they want to vote for when they get there. Um, so uh, I, I think, you know, this broad-based effort um, is, is reminiscent of what um, those generations of civil rights activists, uh, particularly in the 19. 40s uh, had to, to strategize. I think they were training people to pass literacy tests and helping them understand how to pay their poll taxes in order to get them into the polls. Uh, thankfully, we're not facing um, bars that high yet, uh, and yet we still might take a lesson from their strategy of, of how they began to push uh, for voting rights even well before the passage of the Voting Rights Act. Might we also be better informed or take a lesson understanding the pretext, whether they were manipulative, uh, earnest, or um, full of malarkey, as our president would say, justifying the earlier generation of segregation laws and the doctrine of segregation. So we all know about the mythology of separate but equal and the the inability to deliver anything that remotely would achieve that, you know, separate from whether that violated the Constitution, just the practical effect of that. Yeah. And, and we know that, you know, today, the opponents of these voter ID laws or other restrictive measures say, <clears throat> you know, that they suppress the vote, that they're anti-democratic or undemocratic. The supporters of those laws say, you know, we, we want integrity uh, in, in these systems. Um, and without having those stringent measures, we won't have integrity. Um, and some of them increasingly 
especially with, with the recent rise of the kind of new white supremacy and far right, will acknowledge that their idea of a better democracy is a less pluralistic democracy, not really a democracy, an autocracy, right? But they will, they will kind of meander, weave their way through some pretext or justification. So I'm wondering how that discourse and, and um, argumentation around it um, compares to the segregation law era. How, how should we arm ourselves understanding kind of the, the arguments, whether they're um, you know, genuine or, or disingenuous? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, laws intended to, uh, good law are intended to solve problems. And we know that there's no actual problem um, with people who um, shouldn't be voting, who are busting in and fighting their way up there to just fake vote. Um, we have the opposite problem. We have um, a huge percentage of people who are qualified voters who don't participate in our, our system. And so given that that is the actual problem that we are facing, um, you wonder when you see laws that would make it even more difficult and more arduous for uh, marginalized to vote, um, marginalized people to vote, then you, then you know that they are creating additional hurdles. Right. Um, if our problem is um, too many people drinking water on a, on a pole line in Georgia, then I guess they solve that problem. Um, by preventing um, someone from giving someone a bottle of water. Um, right. So when we see those kinds of um, brazenly uh, suppressive techniques, we know that this isn't an encouragement of democracy, but rather a discouragement. Um, and, and when we see laws that are disingenuous, we, we, we are tracing them to the activism, to the success of uh, these, these uh, voting efforts that we've seen across the South. Um, you don't have to suppress something that's not working well. So it's a reminder that we need to continue the fight. Um, it, it's, it's unfortunate that that has to be the fight when there are so many things that we've already talked about that people are facing that we could be organizing and, and activating against. Um, but this is the fight that's before us and the stakes are quite high, particularly in our local and state elections that we are electing people who are representative of the majority in, in yeah. those states and in those there, communities. There's something so frivolous and, and again, inhumane, uh, just like about, you know, tell me how many jelly beans are, are in this mug, mm -hmm. uh, which happened. Yeah. And uh, if you didn't count the exact number of jelly beans, you know, you were denied the franchise. And it's there's something so, um, you know, kind of similarly mean and inhumane about the provision that you mentioned, which is not being able to, to give folks water, um, you know, or feed folks on long lines. Um, mm -hmm. And so let, let that be said, uh, before we close, by the time this airs, likely um, we will have uh, the first black woman justice on the United States Supreme Court. Um, it doesn't make a meaningful difference on an issue like voter ID laws or voter suppression, because the balance is still six to three in favor largely of the kind of anti-voting suppressive measures. Um, and on many other issues, uh, for example, we fully anticipate maybe by the time this is running and you're viewing on television, Roe v. Wade will have been abolished. Uh, Gratz and Grutter v. Bollinger, also the affirmative action cases will be 
overturn. Um, so how, how do you view it with this historic accomplishment um, that is glass ceiling breaking um, and at the same time the realization that it, it's not going to matter for the immediate and maybe even long-term jurisprudence of this country? Um, it, it's such an important moment to note, um, uh, such a long journey. Um, Black women jurists have been um, fighting this fight and part of this, the civil rights um, fight for such a long time. So to see a Black woman um, finally sit on the highest court in the land uh, will be an accomplishment uh, no matter the circumstances and will be a welcome change um, to finally be re represented in that body. Um, and she is, of course, more than um, profoundly qualified to sit there. Um, a reminder of that so many of the questions of um, affirmative action and access that um, will be in front of the court um, are so important that uh, the, the laws that, that paved the way for greater access um, were necessary and, and still in many ways remain necessary. Um, we are facing a, a, a deep and profound challenge um, uh, the, the, the approach to the courts that has been affected on the, the last administration was uh, really devastating to our ability to um, have a, a, a balanced look at the things that are facing us. Um, but we recall um, that there's a long history of progress and um, a, a pushback, and that this is part of our history. If, if we remember our history as just one climb up a a, a hill of progress and we're misremembering uh, our experiences over time. And so the activism, uh, the passion and the organizing uh, that we need to see, um, they, they need to continue. We need um, a Voting Rights Act in, in front of um, the Congress to pass. We need to make sure that we are providing um, safe and effective health care for women. We need those things. Um, and we'll continue to fight for them. We had to fight for them before, and evidently we'll still have to fight for them now. Um, but that, that's a fight we're up to, and we're ready to, to organize and do. Blair Kelly, Professor of History at NC State, North Carolina State. Thank you so much for your insight today. Thanks for having me. Please visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to view this program online or to access over 1,500 other interviews. And do check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Open Mind TV for updates on future programming. Continuing production of The Open Mind has been made possible by grants from Ann Olnick, Joan Gans Cooney, Lawrence B. Benenson, the Engelson Family Foundation, Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, Joanne and Kenneth Wellner Foundation, and from the corporate community, Mutual of America.